The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. It's the fourth day of our summer seven-day session, 13th of January, uh, 13th of January 2019. And we're going to um, just continue with the chapter on questioning in The Faith to Doubt by Stephen Batchelor. Um, so Stephen Batchelor is, is uh, married to Martine Batchelor and has written many books. Um, including um, the Guide to Bodhisattva's Way of Life, um, Alone with Others, um, a, a guidebook to Tibet, and um, a history of Buddhism in the West, um, another one called Living with the Devil, about um, evil in Buddhism, um, a very fine writer. And uh, we'll take up We'll check up where we left off. Um, just picking out pieces of this this um, the chapter which which could be helpful to us in our, our questioning. He says the practice of meditation is a process of attrition. The mind has a seemingly infinite capacity for chatter. I'm sure people can relate to that. Um, and there is no instant or easy cure for this proliferation of thoughts and emotions. Only the patient continuity of meditation, what the Chinese master Xu Yun calls a long enduring mind, can finally wear it down. This process is echoed in, echoed in Lao Tzu's words, what is of all things most yielding can overwhelm that which is of all things most hard. Water is that which is most yielding, rock that which is most hard. The patient unhurried yet continuous flow of water can wear down even the most resistant and stubborn rock. And it's this very um, uh, image that we can we can um, apply in our meditation, Nazazen, patient, unhurried yet continuous flow. The core of a meditative attitude is questioning itself. Such questioning, though, has nothing to do with the curiosity of calculation. Meditative questioning inquires into no individually discernible detail of life, but into the whole. The mystery of life is something in which we are inextricably involved. In contrast to a calculating inquiry, in which the inquirer is separate from the problem, only a conceptual distinction can be made between the meditator and the mystery. This is a really important point. For meditative questioning partakes in the nature of the mystery itself. 
It is a kind of fundamental astonishment or perplexity, reflecting that which simultaneously shows itself and withdraws. Actually, this, this inquiry, our questioning, is, is um, an aspect of what he calls here the mystery. It's, we can also understand it as being, being proof of our Buddha nature. The fact that we can question, the, the, the fact that we can investigate. The so French philosopher uh, and artist Gabriel Marcel, who says, a problem is something which I meet, which I find complete before me, but which I can therefore lay siege to and reduce. But a mystery is something in which I am myself involved, and it can therefore only be thought of as a sphere where the distinction between what is in me and what is before me loses its meaning and initial validity. A genuine problem is subject to an appropriate technique by the exercise of which it is defined, whereas a mystery, by definition, transcends every conceivable technique. When we're working on a koan, uh, we, we are both the subject and the object of the inquiry. And this is how it works, it's magic. It brings these two things that we think of as being separate together. Bachelor Rate um, relates this this um, fact that the mystery transcends every conceivable technique to the saying which we already mentioned once before, the Zen maxim, great doubt, great awakening, little doubt, little awakening, no doubt, no awakening. He says these terse lines express how penetration of the mysterious is directly related to the degree and intensity of questioning. Doubt or questioning is seen as the indispensable key to awakening. It is the vitality of a meditative attitude, the driving force which heightens the sense of the mysterious to the point where it unexpectedly re reveals what until then had remained withdrawn and unsuspected. This is this is the moment when when the then when we say that the doubt mass breaks open. There is a kind of unknowing present in meditative questioning, which is quite different from that found in the Buddhist idea of ignorance. And I'm sure most people know about about Bodhidharma and Emperor Wu. <coughs> Bodhidharma was asked who are you? And he replied, I don't know. This, this not knowing is highly valued. 
throughout Zen history. The notion of ignorance encompasses not merely an absence of knowledge but about something, but also a distortion of it. In ignorance, things appear in a way in which they do not exist. There is also a clinging and grasping involved, which solidifies the distortion and sets it up as something real and secure. I think here of a perfect example of this is, is um, climate crisis, the denial, grounded in attachment and setting up something um, as real and secure that is false. Meditative unknowing is free from such grasping and distortion. Instead of clinging, it lets go. Instead of insisting that things exist in a certain way, it accepts their mysteriousness. Such unknowing loosens our hold on the immutability of the familiar. It is simple and relaxed. It retains a naive, childlike openness. Such unknowing loosens our hold on the immutability of the familiar. I think here of um, another Zen maxim. Before awakening, um, before coming to the way, um, mountains were mountains and rivers were rivers. After entering the way, mountains were not mountains, rivers were not rivers. But after realizing the way, mountains were mountains and rivers were rivers. The familiar can become unfamiliar when we take up practice and we have to, to rediscover its truth, the truth of things that we see. Suddenly we question everything and then there, there needs to be a, a, a kind of return to ordinariness after we arrive, that questioning arises. This unknowing can be cared, compared to the Zen concepts of no mind or no thought, which Hui Nung defined as to be unstained in all environments. A modern Chinese Zen teacher, Garma Sisi Chang, explains the so-called no mind is not like clay, wood or stone that is devoid of consciousness nor does the term imply that the mind stands still without any reaction when it contacts objects or circumstances in the world. It does not adhere to anything, but is natural and spontaneous at all times and under all circumstances. And especially it is unselfconscious. That's really the, 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 the essence of, of this no-mindedness that we, we talk about in Zen. This spontaneity and naturalness extends even to mental activity itself. No thought, says Hui Nung, is not to think even when involved in thought. 
or as, as uh, Master Dogen famously said, and I think he was quoting somebody else, um, think non-thinking. And Da Hui exhorts us to be totally without knowledge and understanding, like a three-year-old child. Or, or to be a moo fool. To be, to be questioning with an intensity that causes everything else to drop away and for us to see things freshly rather than, than filtered through our preconceptions, our experience. Earlier in Sashin, somebody was talking about um, remembering that experience that um, as a child uh, that you can have of of um, waking up and not knowing where you are or even maybe who you are and kind of that moment before before the discriminating mind kicks in and actually it's that's still that 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 moment is still um, available to us to to us as adults is just much harder to access. But there's something. But there's something uh, about zazen. Right after we've woken up in the morning, to to go straight to our zazen, that um, kind of taps into that 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 sense. Of, of a clean slate, uh, a mind that is, is, that is fresh, innocent. A meditative attitude is eternally prepared to wait, freed from any pretensions of knowing nothing in particular is expected to happen. Such waiting is content to let things be while at the same time acknowledging that concealed within the mystery there is an unknown. That which lies hidden cannot be coaxed forth it has its own time beyond the time of what can be recollected and anticipated. Waiting waits. It is alert to every moment, but has no expectations. Another, another important point is, is to practice whatever our practice is, to practice without expectations. Or as they say in the to, to uh, Tibetan tradition, with no hope of fruition. There's also um, a fragment of, of a poem by T.S. Eliot that expresses this. I, I think this is, uh, is from the Four Quartets. Um, it goes like this. I said to my soul, be still, and wait without hope. For hope would be hope of the wrong thing. 
I said to my soul, be still, and wait without hope, for hope would be hope of the wrong thing. Our true nature, whatever we imagine it to be, it's not that. Because it can't be um, encapsulated by words or concepts. Was was um, Roshi is was um, is fond of saying, "It's not what you think." Expectation is characteristic of calculation. Our calculations are only able to proceed as long as we can foresee a certain result. If we are unable to expect something from such a procedure, even if it is just the proof that our hypothesis is flawed, then we would have no incentive to undertake it. Calculation is goal-oriented. Every step it makes is taken in anticipation of some result. Expectation draws its nourishment from the past. Out of all our recollections, it pieces together an image of what is desired and then projects it into the future as an anticipated goal. In expecting something, we devise a bridge between the past and the future that exists only in our thoughts. It is fatal in meditation to entertain expectations. As soon as we fix our mind as soon as we fix in our mind a picture of what it is we seek to attain, we restrict ourselves to the boundaries of the known. The only notions which will ever be capable of producing will be drawn from a pool of impressions, ideas, symbols and experiences we have stored in our memory. Even such noble ideas as awakening and Buddha are finally nothing but collages of past impressions stuck together by logic and imagination. Such images can serve as signs to help guide us along the path, but should never be allowed to intrude into our meditative penetration of the mysterious. If they or any other image of a goal attempt to foreshadow the unpredictable and unknown, then meditation will be trapped within thought, memory, and imagination and separated from its mystery. One of the greatest dangers of all lies in the recollection of our own experiences in meditation. It is not so unusual while meditating to awaken to something extraordinary and unprecedented. But the more unusual and mystical is the experience, the greater will be the danger for we will be tempted, once the immediate experience has faded, to place an image of it before us and then strive to recapture it. Once this happens and we confidently proceed under the illusion that the unpredictable will from now on conform to our well-founded expectations, then genuine meditative questioning is lost. Thus, the beginner has a great advantage over the experienced meditator. Um, often, it's um, a person's second session or one after that that is um, 
where they most struggle because when when people come to their first sashin they they don't have expectations and so they they bring a fresh mind to the process um, and this this can be very uh, freeing once we have expectations then we're, we're setting ourselves up for struggle in different ways but here he's talking particularly about um, experiences we have in our meditation could be um, getting a taste of, of what a quiet mind is like and then after that, after that tip of the tongue taste, we do everything, and this may be uh, quite, uh, we'll have degrees of consciousness or unconsciousness, but we, we are striving to get back to that place of stillness, expansiveness. And sometimes people will, will struggle for years trying to get back to some experience. With no idea or picture of what might happen, we simply have to wait. No amount of experience can predict the ways in which the mysterious will unfold. In waiting, as with unknowing, we cannot resort to our stores of accumulated knowledge, but in leaving them behind, we enter not a state of blank indifference, but one of vivid, unprejudiced questioning. Or if we're working on uh, shikantaza or, or the breath, a state of vigilance. Not, not waiting for something, this is the point he's making here, but um, uh, consciously abandoning our calculating mind. There's a, there's a poem um, by W.S. Merwin, who's, who's um, a very prolific American poet, um, still alive in his 90s, still writing. Uh, he's a Buddhist. And, and you can read, read his uh, Buddhism into this, this uh, poem of his. It's called Exercise. First forget what time it is for an hour. Do it regularly every day. Then forget what day of the week it is. Do this regularly for a week. Then forget what country you are in and practice doing it in company for a week. Then do them together for a week with as few breaks as possible. Follow these by forgetting how to add or to subtract. It makes no difference. You can change them around after a week. Both will help you later to forget how to count. 
forget how to count, starting with your own age, starting with how to count backward, starting with even numbers, starting with Roman numerals, starting with fractions of Roman numerals, starting with the old calendar, going on to the old alphabet, going on to the alphabet, until everything is continuous again. Go on to forgetting elements, starting with water, proceeding to earth, rising in fire. Forget fire. Forget how to count. This is something that um, we can get into in Sishin. Um, counting how far through the round we are, how far through the day. This, this it can be quite excruciating actually when we're, we're um, if we're in pain and we're waiting for the end of the round, how long it is before that end comes. See, if we can't just forget about where we are in the round. One of the reasons why the bells are different at the beginning of a round and at the end of a round is so that people are, are signaled, which it is, because we can get so involved in the practice that um, we're no longer holding that in mind. But the bells tell us. The bells, the whole structure of Sishin that we, we set up is, uh, in a sense, uh, to allow us to forget about time and space. We don't have to think about what comes next. Meditative questioning waits and listens in the simplicity of unknowing. Although quiet and freed from expectations and curiosity, it is alive with the tension of perplexity. Such questioning rarely occurs spontaneously. To be aware of the mystery at the heart of the ordinary is not something that can be summoned forth at will. When Huai Zhang was asked by Huai Ning uh, what it was he had awakened to, he replied, "To say it is like some to say it is like something is not to the point." As soon as the mysterious is stood alongside the familiar details of the world and compared with this or that thing, we immediately lose it. To lock it into concepts, to circumscribe it with adjectives, 
is a wishful attempt to bring it into the range of calculation. Still, Hui Nung pressed Huai Zhang to be more specific. He asked him whether it was something that could be cultivated and experienced. Huai Zhang's reply exposed the crux of this dilemma. He said, although its cultivation and experiencing are not called, uncalled for, it cannot be tainted. Although its cultivation and experience are not un uncalled for, it cannot be tainted. The paradox is that even though the mysterious it can never be influenced, manipulated, or in any way affected by what we do, it is still worthwhile to train ourselves in such a way that we are more exposed to its unpredictable nature. And that's that's really it's what we're, we're um, if, there's a, if we could say that there's a goal in our practice, it's to to train ourselves to keep turning towards this mystery, to keep recollecting it, because we forget. Over and over and over again we get caught up in our little um, concerns, our petty concerns, our dramas, um, and we, we, our world narrows down and beca becomes constricted. And the practice gives us a way to to open it up wide again, to connect with things and people, animals and plants. Um, Bachelor goes on to talk about how uh, about the koans and and how they um, um, help us to to connect with the mysterious and this word koan of course um, means public case like a like a legal precedent a case that can be studied to reveal um, truth he says, just as a judge studies a previous legal case to get his bearings on the complexities of a present case, so can the Zen student study a public case to get his bearings on the complexities of the present case of his or her own existential dilemma. The account of a previous court case will never exactly duplicate the details of the one at hand, it is incapable of providing a ready-made solution that can just be transferred to the present case. All it can offer is an orientation, an example, or a sense of direction. Likewise, the unique circumstances of an awakening related in the Zen records will never be repeated. These cases do not offer an answer to our own current existential predicament. They can only provide an indication of the way ahead. A pointer. We have this this um, saying about the the finger pointing at the moon. That's that's 
all all the teachings, all the literature, the Zen literature, um, give us these uh, fingers that point towards the truth. But they're not the truth itself. That we have to, to experience in our own hearts. And, and um, we get to that place on our own particular journey that is, is ours. And unfolds according to our, our particular karma. Well, I think we'll, we'll um, stop there with the faith to doubt and turn to another text just to kind of balance things out. We've been talking a lot about questioning. Um, and so I want to just turn to um, a book called Illuminating Silence by Master Sheng Yin, um, where he talks about... Um, Shikantaza, or as it's as it's called in, um, in Chinese, Mo Jiao, or silent illumination. And Mister um, Sheng Yin, um, he teaches that this in in a series of three stages, which is different from most of the ways that, sh that, that this practice is taught. But I've certainly found it a helpful way of approaching this practice, which is so, so subtle and, um, and often quite hard to, to grasp. And so I think this, this approach, uh, people can, can find it very helpful. So he summarizes the first level by saying, pay attention only to yourself sitting. You need to place your attention precisely within that very body that is now sitting on the cushion beneath you. It is important to have a feeling of the totality of that body's experiencing. We do not focus on particular parts, the hands, the feet, face, the nose or the posture as such nor especially on the breathing, nor on the location of the breathing sensation, but on the total integrated awareness of bodily presence. To do this, you must be relaxed, yet at the same time alert. Be sure that your posture is completely correct in one of the orthodox styles of sitting. Unless this was, is so, the body will not be well balanced and inequalities in muscle tension will develop in different parts of the body, gradually producing distortions and mental agitation. Um, this is an important uh, reminder that we have to be very careful about um, a posture when doing um, any um, form of meditation for extended periods because it needs to be uh, sustainable and not setting up um, tensions and imbalances that will, will kind of sabotage the process. 
So when he says here about orthodox styles of sitting, he doesn't mean that we all have to sit in full lotus, but we do have to find a posture in which we can ha uh, be aligned, correctly aligned, comfortably upright, um, otherwise we won't be able to sustain the practice through hours and hours and hours of sitting over days and days and weeks and months. When I tell people to relax, there is always somebody who overdoes it and at once begins to feel drowsy. On the other hand, when I tell people not to be lazy, there is always someone who tenses up his body and mind until he begins to wonder why he feels stressed. It is vital, therefore, to find a point of balance between relaxation and alertness. As I have said before, it is like catching a feather on a fan. It takes a certain alertness and discernment. We, we um, need to kind of um, uh, check in with ourselves, test the waters periodically, just to make sure that we're not veering into um, excessive tension, overwroughtness, or on the other hand, uh, sliding into um, laziness, as he calls it here, dullness. And I think it's fair to say that in Shikantaza, the danger is more weighted onto the side of slipping into dullness. And it can be quite a pleasant dullness, a peaceful, quiet, even blissful dullness, but dullness nevertheless. And with, with the koan practice, the weight is a little bit more on the other side. <clears throat> the, the danger, the more prominent danger there, is to become too tense. Um, and that's counterproductive too. Too tense, and, and often too tense around um, a goal, achieving a goal. He says it's like... Um, trying to catch a feather on a fan. And some people will have heard this, this um, analogy before. Um, we have looked at it before, but just um, for people who haven't. Earlier on the same text, he says, um, meditation is like using the old-fashioned type of handheld type of fan whether you'd fan yourself with, with on a hot day. And your job is to, to catch a single feather on the surface of that fan. He says, every time you move the fan, the feather is likely to be blown away. It is a delicate business. You have to hold the fan quite still, just under the space through which the feather is sinking of its own motion. The feather then comes to rest on top of the fan. You can imagine how difficult or how, how easy this may be. Any use of force and the feather is lost. Yet, once you grasp the principle, it is something very easy to do. Stilling the mind is like catching a feather with a fan. It needs patience and persistence. When practicing, do not be afraid of a distracting thought. If your body has a problem, do not be too concerned about it. If your mind is worrying, put the worry down. Keep the mind on the method, waiting for the feather to sink onto the fan. 
So again, this this waiting without um, an expectation that your wait will come to end an end at a certain point. Supposing you are in a very good situation, no distractions, no wandering thoughts. Whatever you do, never congratulate yourself. Away goes the feather at once. So don't be happy. Do not think how successful you are. Just observe the situation without movement towards or away. If the mind moves, moves wandering thoughts begin. He's, he's kind of um, joking here, I think, when he says, don't be happy. But uh, not to attach to our happiness, not to draw conclusions from our pleasant state that we're in right now. Um, so a Tibetan uh, text or teacher, um, <coughs> um, there's a saying, um, Pride is a ghost that stealthily follows our every good action. This is something we need to be very aware of when we, we get into a place of, of uh, self-congratulation, of uh, self-satisfaction. And of course, um, that's uh, something in the mind. Uh, it's not, it's not that we've re reached some state of, of emptiness or no self. And often what comes along with pride um, is, is a kind of insensitivity where we, we're caught up in our uh, feelings of, of um, uh, satisfaction and we may not want um, be so um, aware of what's around us and our effects of our actions. may find ourselves in different ways at odds with others when we get caught up in pride. Because we, we think we're somehow a special case. Well sometimes there's also this, in, this um, inverted pride in the sense of we think we're a special case in a negative way. Um, for instance, that um, everybody else has the Buddha nature and can realize their true nature, except me, because I'm hopeless, a lost cause. It's also a kind of pride as well. Back to our um, passage about, about Shikantaza. Whenever you feel lazy and you need to bring up some energy, check your posture and make the mind bright. Sometimes people 
will say, okay, that's all very well, but how do I make my mind bright? Um, um, what if I'm just, I'm just sort of mentally putting that idea of a bright mind in my, in my head rather than actually making it uh, bright? We're sort of telling ourselves that it's bright when it isn't. Um, I think we can get some sense of what, what um, Master Xing Yin is meaning here um, if we think about um, if, we, if it was the middle of the night and we were alone in the house we're, we're lying in bed and um, we hear the front door of the house opening and you're not expecting anybody to come home at that point if you heard that it's likely you would you would instantly be wide awake and very alert so that that's that what we're really we're trying to to um, give rise to greater greater alertness greater greater um, arousal you could say arousal but without tension Some people sometimes also question how how to how to how do I question more intensively? Well, if you think of something that really some something that would be really bothersome, say say um, uh, one of your children does something that's very very. Um, extreme. Um, Roger Kepler once gave the example of what if your you came home and found that your child had had um, killed the family pet. That would send you into a into a um, questioning. Why? Why has he done this? What is going on? And, and it's that kind of um, intensity of questioning that, that one needs to um, arouse in working with a koan. What is it? I know it's right here, it's right, my, it's my birthright, it's, my, it's the nature of existence. Why don't I know what it is? Why, doesn't it, why isn't it something that's active in my life? He says to check your posture and make the mind bright. Our, our, our physical attitude can help to reinforce that, that sense of vigilance or attention, to be, to be sitting to attention like, like, uh, like a cat watching a mouse hole. And it's a good example, a cat, because it's, it's both extremely alert and relaxed at ease. It couldn't sit there for a long time watching that mouse hole 
if it was um, all tense. It just wouldn't be sustainable. Whenever you feel stressed or fatigued, examine yourself to see whether you are putting too much tension into your body or holding the posture too rigidly. It's not only the body that needs to find the point of balance in a relaxed alertness, but the mind needs to do the same. The, the mind needs to be clear about what you are doing, neither drowsy nor drifting in a vague haze, nor sitting in a blank stupor. You need to be alert, aware and present, but neither tense nor preoccupied by an intention to do well or by some regret. To drop our ideas about success and failure. They're ideas and they just get in the way. Well, our time is up. We'll um, stop here and recite the four vows. All beings without number I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. blind passions I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to attain all beings without number I vow to Endless blind passions, I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.